Holy shit. That's how everything you're about to hear began, with the breakdown of Americans in debt and the shock at just how far gone South Carolinians actually are compared to literally everywhere when it comes to bills we can't pay off. Every third person in this state has debt that's in collections. If you're only counting people of color, that number shrinks to one in two. No other state has that high a percentage of its residents choking on their debts, and none of them even come a close second. Well, I found that out, I cursed, and then I did maybe the dumbest thing I've done in the past five years. I asked why. The medical debt in our state is absolutely unconscionable, that people have the audacity of getting ill or having a catastrophic illness. Suddenly you find yourself with owing thousands of dollars. This is a small rural area. Well, we just got our census data in and we, we show an overall dip of near 9%. Those that, that wind up staying um, have a, a difficulty surviving. I can't even pay my student loan back because I don't make enough. My student loan, if I was to do it, would be more than my mortgage. It would be just as much as my monthly bills. These financial products are more dangerous than people really think. People are just being victimized by this. I, I, I see it as an epidemic. Yeah, like I said, holy shit. This is Indebted, South Carolina Public Radio's deep dive into the ecosystem of debt in the Palmetto State, and it is quite an ecosystem. I'm your host, Scott Morgan. Over eight episodes, we'll dig into some of the factors that make South Carolina the worst place in the country, and in some cases among the worst in the world, for personal debt. In our first episode, Foundations, Scope, and a look at where debt, for most of us, begins with your credit card. Okay, so two years ago, I stumbled across a report that broke down the 50 U.S. counties with the highest shares of residents with debt in collections, by which I mean debt that doesn't get paid off and gets sold to a debt collector. Those numbers on 3,000-some counties nationwide came from the Urban Institute. They're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, public policy-focused agency up in Washington, D.C. And a website called 24-7 Wall Street conveniently broke down the 50 worst counties in the country based on that Urban Institute data. Well, South Carolina made that list seven times. We only have 46 counties here, and seven of them ended up among the worst of the worst, the highest ratio of residents in debt in the country by a mile. And since that report back in the spring of 2021, Urban Institute has updated those numbers. As of 2022, there are eight South Carolina counties among the 50 with the worst rates of debt burden in the country, and 16 are in the bottom 100. And if the math isn't registering with you, 16 out of 46 is more than one in three. The worst rate of debt burden by a mile just got worse by a mile and a half. And nobody's talking about it, which is precisely why we're doing this podcast. We're going to talk with your neighbors and mine, and they're going to let you into pieces of their lives that most of you would never want to share with anybody, especially me. I know because I've asked. Well, the neighbors you'll hear from over the course of this series, they want to talk about debt because they believe it needs talking about, because debt is a four-letter word. Over the course of this podcast, we'll cover student loans that made things worse, medical bills that create terrible choices, debt as a kind of a public health hazard, how people with money can end up in bad deals, how all the separate types of debt feed on themselves to make a living, breathing biome, 
and what some of South Carolina's greatest institutions, advocates, office holders, and lenders are doing to address a problem that binds more residents per capita than everywhere. So, all that said, let's get into debt. Money's kind of a game when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, you need it for everything, but it's only worth anything if you don't actually keep it. And to me, that sort of makes the very concept of money kind of a debt. And then, of course, there's credit, which is really just debt you're good at. And if you're able to manage your debts, you get to call it credit. And that opens up all kinds of new opportunities. But you don't get to call it credit without taking out some kind of debt first. That's as true for corporations and governments as it is for dudes with their first diner's club cards. If you're anything like me, your debt trouble started one day in the mail. The day you opened up that letter from Show Nuff, Savings and Loan, and found yourself staring at your very first credit card, with your first name, last name, middle initials stamped in raised golden letters across the whole face of it. Good times. Well, I fell for it. The promise of consumer credit, the chance to woo girls with my dazzling purchase power, all of which got me exactly zero dates and $30,000 in debt spread over six credit cards within a period of, I don't know, 10, 11 years. So since credit cards are a lot of people's first foray into the universe of credit and debt, and since credit cards somehow play into every aspect of the debt ecosystem, I figured they were a good place to start. I don't want to say that people need credit cards, but credit cards often are a way or a road to better credit in general. Meet Bailey Parker communications director for the South Carolina Department of Consumer Affairs, who's been there, done that, and actually got the t-shirt. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when I went to college, I went to Utah State University. First time I was away from home, and I went to my first football game, and there was a tent outside the football game that says, sign up for a credit card, get a free t-shirt. And I'm not, you know, (laughs) kids are stupid. I was stupid. So you end up you know, opening up an account or whatever it may be that you don't necessarily know how to use. I mean, how? what are the odds that a kid's going to graduate from high school and know how to balance a budget or know what a credit card, what the APR even means, right? Um, fair warning. I'm a data geek, which means I'm going to throw stats at you from time to time. You ready? Good. Wallet Hub ranked the most to least financially literate states in 2022 and found us to be 11th worst. Get used to South Carolina being on the downsides of lists like that, by the way. So no, kids are not heading off to college in this state knowing much about how credit, much less how credit cards work. Bailey? Lenders are going to look at you better if you are a responsible user of credit cards. Um, So, I mean, they are a necessary evil in some ways. I know that there are some well-known people out there that will say you should never get a credit card. I just don't think it's realistic in the long run uh, to tell the average consumer never get a credit card. Uh, Because how are you gonna build your credit otherwise? Bailey's not against credit cards, of course. She just knows how easily good intentions go belly up. Because a credit card's greatest asset, its convenience, happens to be its greatest threat, too. 
Credit is dangerous, credit cards especially, because they're easy. It's so much easier to just keep swiping. And a lot of people lull themselves into a false sense of security of, I don't have the money now, but I will. We sometimes give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, like, oh, I, I, I'll have it. When in reality, you don't think about the, if you haven't done a budget, and you haven't done all of the other things you need to do to be fiscally responsible for yourself, you probably aren't going to have that money. Did you catch that? That bit about being fiscally responsible? Because if you don't understand the link between being responsible and building credit and operating well in this world, oof. In our day and age, building credit is almost a necessity at this point. And credit cards are one of the easiest ways to get started. So building credit is really the way that you can get lenders to trust you. I hate to use the word trust because that's such an emotional word, but in in layman's terms, it's so that a bank who may be looking to give you a mortgage for a house can say, hey, they have a history of paying their bills on time on their credit card, and they've done that for five years straight, that means they're more likely to pay their mortgage on time. All that to build a good credit score, which, and please believe me when I tell you this, you really want to do. However, it's not even just about your credit score, because you could have a really incredible credit score, but you don't have a long history or you don't have a a variety of credit on your history. And that can impact you negatively. Like it or not, we live in a society in which we judge our worth and the worth of others by our net worth. And that's not a manifesto, that's just a real-life side effect of living in a capitalist free market. We tell ourselves and others who we are through what we buy, what we wear, what we drive, where we go to college, and where we live. All of which puts us into a position to constantly spend on things we might feel we need but can't outright afford. Savvy lenders know how to exploit that. And we, for our part, we can't wait to bite the hook. Impulse buying is probably the number one threat to credit card debt and how people end up spending so much money because you see an incredible deal. And this is all marketing, right? This is how marketers get you. They see incredible deal. It's going to be gone tomorrow. And you think, well, I was I wanted to buy something like this. And if I buy it six months down the line, it's going to be $100 more expensive. So I'll just buy it now, even though I don't have the money. That's where we start to get into huge problems when it comes to credit card debt, because credit cards are so easy, for better or for worse, to get a hold of. And <laughs> a lot of people don't understand There's more behind a credit card other than, oh, they're going to lend me the money and I'm going to pay it back. They don't think about the APR, how high they are, uh, what the interest is going to cost them in the long run. If there's monthly fees, overcharge fees, annual fees, we don't think about these things a lot of the time. I know you want some more stats. Well, the median credit card balance owed per person in South Carolina just last year was almost $2,200. That's bottom half among states, by the way. Average interest rate, even if you have good credit, is almost 23% here. Also not great. And you remember all that stuff I said about South Carolina being all over the bottom end of that Urban Institute data? Well, if you break out the numbers just for credit card delinquencies, we're all over the bottom end of that too. Eight of our counties are among the worst 100. All of them rural, 
all but one of them majority black and brown. You like victim blaming? I don't, but some people really seem to enjoy it. Especially when it comes to other people's credit card problems. I can't tell you the number of people I mentioned credit card debt in front of who then treated me to an essay on how much money people waste on things they don't need. Well, sure, if you look at the numbers from the Federal Reserve showing more than $4.5 trillion in outstanding consumer credit nationwide at the end of 2022, it does look like we're all hopelessly addicted to Amazon. Well, maybe. But if you'll pardon my French, we need a little perspective in this conversation. See, credit cards are easy to get and they're easy to use, but they're also easy to keep paying because you don't have to pay them off in one big check. You get to pay, what, like 3% back of the balance every month? That's not too unmanageable, right? The trouble is, even if you never add another dime on your balance, those payments go on and on and on. Here, you know what? Let me show you something real fast. Take the median credit card balance for South Carolina. That's $2,200, right? Average interest on that card, 23%. Minimum payment, $25. And it would take you 11 and a half years to pay your balance off. You'd also, not for nothing, end up paying back $1,300 in interest, which is, wait, let me check. Yep, more than 23% of $2,200. But we don't think about downer stuff like that when we tap or swipe or whatever it is we do with credit cards at the store these days. We just use them. Credit cards facilitate our lives with speed and convenience and, we think, manageable debt. Until the day we look around and ask, how the hell do I owe this much money on this credit card? I mean, we learned in a hard way, right? But then, do we really need to? This is Dr. Jin Hee Kim. Dr. Kim is a professor of family science at the University of Maryland and a fellow School of Hard Knocks alum when it comes to credit card debt. She's also one of the leading scholars on the mental health effects of debt and financial stress, which we'll explore more in an upcoming episode. For the moment, though, the answer to Dr. Kim's question is probably no. We shouldn't at least have to learn our financial lessons from getting our perky young assets kicked. And then being told the remedy is to just deal with it. Most of us, we laugh or we survive. You know, we wish that we didn't borrow that much money on credit cards, not thinking about it, but we managed it. But for some, it's a disproportion. It's in leading to the health inequities for people of color or the people from low resource families. It is beyond just a personal responsibility. Okay, now we're getting into some of that perspective I was talking about. Lower shares of black and Hispanic families have credit cards compared to Asian and white families. But black and Hispanic families have higher shares of credit card debt. Translation, there's less credit card access among people of color, but they owe a lot more of their income than white and Asian people do on credit card bills. According to the nonprofit Employee Benefit Research Institute, Hispanic households are twice as likely as white households to spend more than 40% of their income paying off debt, which is crazy high. And credit card delinquency rates in South Carolina counties are almost universally higher in communities of color than they are in white communities. But why? Why do people in the poorest communities have so much credit card debt? People are not able to make ends meet, and it's not because... People are living high on the hog, especially in counties like Allendale and Bamberg and Jasper and Hampton. This is Sue Berkowitz, director of Appleseed Legal Justice Center in Columbia. 
it's because they just don't have the resources that allow them to afford to live. And when you have that kind of debt burden weighing on you, it's very, very hard to dig yourself out. Sue's take on credit card debt is less focused on want than on need. Appleseed's clients tend to be poor, and so for them, credit cards tend to be a kind of financial life support system. Because credit cards are the easiest way for most of us to move large sums of money from one set of hands to the other without the need for a bank loan officer or a new credit score check, they come in very handy for exigent circumstances, like, say, medical emergencies. Kaiser put out some numbers that a lot of healthcare debt is actually unaccounted for in their numbers because so much of it is put on credit cards. I know the number that I heard back in 2019 or 2020 was like a third of credit card debt was healthcare debt, at least a third. We're going to dive into the gargantuan medical debt problem in South Carolina in a later episode of this podcast. But for now, it's important to know that the Kaiser that Bailey Parker is talking about is the Kaiser Family Foundation. In June of 2022, Kaiser Health News reported with NPR that credit card debt tied to medical expenses is even more pervasive than previously reported because they realized how much medical debt is not counted as medical debt. It's counted as consumer debt because if a hospital doesn't give you a payment plan, which it doesn't have to, your MasterCard will. I'll use my own example. When I had my son... He was a NICU baby, and he was only in the NICU for three days. When I got that bill, (laughs) we had pretty decent insurance. I worked for the hospital I gave birth at. Pretty decent insurance. For his NICU stay alone, it was $6,000. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut Bailey off there, but I do want to make sure that you heard that right. Bailey had good insurance already, and she worked for the hospital where she had her son, which didn't give her any maternity leave, by the way. Bailey's husband, however, was still in school full-time when this NICU visit went down. So that 6 k that was pretty much all on her. Sorry, Bailey, you were saying? And then, a month later, I get a bill from the anesthesiologist because it's a separate bill because they're contracted with the hospital. I, luckily, was able to set up a payment plan with the hospital for the NICU stay. But my anesthesiologist bill, I had to pay out of pocket. I couldn't do a payment plan. That was $2,200 just by itself. So I've got a payment plan for $6,000 and then I've got another bill for $2,200. What what happened? I put it on my credit card because I had to pay or else it was gonna go to collections. Not surprisingly, Bailey racked up paying interest on that bill with a credit card. By the time she paid down that $2,200, she ended up paying about $2,800 for the convenience. And to reiterate, Bailey did have benefits, which is something almost half a million South Carolinians can't say with her. I wasn't kidding when I said credit cards ooze into every part of the debt ecosystem. Bailey's story is far from unique, but it's also far from the only situation where people find themselves backed into a corner and have to turn to credit cards to help get them by. It happens to people facing rent increases that put dents in other bills. It happens at the store when inflation ramps up like it did last year. And it also happens for a lot of college students who get a free t-shirt with their first credit card. That campus bookstore, after all, is a great way to break in that card you got from all them smiley folks at some booth at the tailgate. Kids are paying for their books. 
sometimes. Uh, they're, if they're getting scholarships or they're taking out student loans, they may only qualify for a certain amount that may only cover their classes. What if it doesn't cover their books? You know how expensive college books are used? They need a computer. There's so many expenses when it comes to these things that, yeah, we can get ourselves into trouble. You know who agrees with Bailey? Dr. Jin Hee Kim. Parents borrowing money for children's education, like Parent PLUS loan. So now the debt or some of the student loan I have studied, it's not just impacting some generation Z or a millennial. All, all generations are you know, experiencing high levels of the student loan debt overall, including Gen X. Gen X is the highest, but you know, also boomers and over older because they borrow money, they impact their finances for children and grandchildren. We got a whole episode on student debt in South Carolina up next, by the way, and it's bad here particularly if you're Black. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. The point I'm making here is that life is expensive, and it likes to throw a few sliders at you every now and again. And it's easy to put them on credit cards because, well, how else can most of us spend so much money we need but we don't have? And either because or in spite of that convenience, it's easy to vilify credit cards and the banks that issue them. But is that really fair? Yeah, I don't believe even for a minute that financial institutions are targeting low-income, needy, homeless people out of any feeling other than we can make income here, we can make money here. This is Lee Gardner. Lee is chair of the board at Pathways Community Center, Rock Hill's main hub for homeless and social services. He's also the retired president and CEO of Family Trust Federal Credit Union, which means Lee knows an awful lot about how banks and financial institutions make money. The short version is, Even if there's not some conspiratorial shenanigans going on to target the poor and desperate, banks know that where there is desperation, there's opportunity. And you're down to your last few dollars and you have to pay rent and pay bills and I'll offer you a card that will allow you immediate access to $5,000. Is that going to catch your attention? Do you want to hear about all the other aspects of it, the ins and outs and evils, or you just want the $5,000? You know, generally speaking, people who are desperate, they want the money. So uh, I think there is at least some element of truth to the fact that card issuers, uh, banks and others, uh, realize that there is a need and it's their opportunity. What you might not know is how credit card issuers make money off you and me. Hint, it's not just the interest rates. In my career in banking, the last 37 and a half years of it as CEO of a credit union, our major sources of income were not interest on credit cards. That's why you see these offers that say 0.9%, you know, for X amount of time. Now, if you flip that over and you see the fine print, you'll see that, well, if this happens or this happens, the interest rate's going to go up. But in my experience, it was what the merchant pays to Visa or MasterCard to allow their merchants to accept payment with a credit card. And some of that is shared by the financial institution that issued the card. You know why the house always wins? Because it knows you'll keep playing. The free market is designed to profit from you and me spending extra money in exchange for extra time to pay the bill. But it's also designed to profit from providing us with convenience. You need to pay for something? Hand over a card, and a bunch of little munchkins move some numbers around in cyberspace, and boom, you have a new hat. Easy and convenient. 
And for their troubles, the little munchkins take a little off the sale for themselves. And it's a fair trade, to be fair. They're providing a service, and they do deserve to get paid. Just keep in mind that that service being provided is a service that makes it convenient for you to spend your money. Every time you use this service, credit card companies make money on upfront fees and, even if it's not the bulk of the lender's income, again, on back-end interest. But Lee likes to point out that if you use credit cards wisely, they can actually work in your favor. Case in point, Visa came to the rescue when Lee's daughter's wedding dress maker went bankrupt and the fallout almost caused him to have to pay for a dress he'd already bought. I paid for that dress with Visa. Well, with Visa Credit, you have chargeback privileges. If there's fraud or they don't deliver the product, you can charge it back to the financial institution and they have to give you credit. So I didn't pay a dime for that dress and because I bought it directly from the designer, they gave me the designer cost, not the retail cost. So it didn't cost me more money, it cost me less money. That's because I used Visa. So if you know how to use Visa and use it properly, or any credit card, it can be very advantageous. That's one example where it was very advantageous to us. Or the nature of credit can be used as a weapon. Credit cards are not evil. The misuse of credit cards and encouraging people to drive up credit that you know they can never repay is, is evil. And it, by effects, it disparately impacts the low-income people because they have need for money. It desperately affects communities of color, too, who are twice as likely to have delinquent credit card debt as white communities in South Carolina, despite being less than a third of the population. Okay, so before we wrap this episode up, I want to talk about the intangible. For this, I will need the help of my good friend, the dark. I spent the better part of two years looking into why South Carolina's in so much worse shape than every other state when it comes to rates of debt. And over all that time, I came to understand something ethereal. If you want to know how debt survives, start by looking in the dark. I think the thing that struck me the most in reporting on debt these past couple years is the irony that while every single one of us deals with debt and every single one of us understands it, so many of us feel completely alone in it, isolated in our own little corner of the dark, ashamed to talk about something that hangs over all of us, even, it seems, or maybe especially, with our friends. I'm even in a friend group that is open to talking about money and finances, and we don't even talk about it. Sally Ingalls used to be a high school economics teacher. I met her through her mom, Susan, a consumer attorney in Greenville, who raised Sally to be smart about finances and open when talking about money. We do try to be very open with each other about, like, finance stuff. You know, when I think about, like, my girlfriend group, we are all big believers in, like, we should talk about our pay more. But I could see being concerned about bringing a negative part of that to the table of, like, oh, I have to tell all my friends who are all very financially responsible that I'm in debt. <laughs> and then I can see the flip side of that, where if your friend group doesn't talk about finance stuff, you also don't feel comfortable bringing that to the table. So I think that it is just a taboo topic that people are maybe hesitant to talk about anyways, and then especially hesitant to talk about the negative part of it. Maybe I'm just used to making my living talking about unpleasant things, but I don't quite understand the reticence to talk about debt. I do know what it's like to feel isolated, like you've done something wrong just because you can't quite figure out the secret handshake. But that's my point for bringing up the dark. 
and why, under everything you've heard and everything you're about to hear in the upcoming episodes of this podcast, the major reason I dove into that rabbit hole two years ago is because we need some mother love and sunlight. And it ain't just me who thinks so. There's a problem that we need to have a conversation about and, and take some of that taboo nature off of asking for help or, you know, admitting I need to find some sort of help to deal with my credit card debt instead of just living in this bubble of I don't want people to know I have credit card debt or that I have payday loan debt. And so I'm, I'm just going to suffer and struggle by myself because I'm afraid to ask for help or I'm worried that I'm going to be judged. And so I think the more we can have the conversation about like, it happens to people, you know, it, it happens more easily and probably more often to people than we all realize because we just don't talk about it. And so I think having the conversations is also an important step to addressing the problem. Holy shit. That's exactly what I was going to say. On the next episode of Indebted, a look into the very, very high cost of getting an education. I was a single mom. I'm going to college trying to graduate because it was a requirement for my job at that time. So I had to do it. I basically, you know, I didn't have a choice. At the same time, from the school standpoint, you're almost about to graduate. So they're giving you less and less money. So they're kind of, in a sense, forcing you to get the student loan. Student loan debt in South Carolina. Next time on Indebted. Indebted is a production of South Carolina Public Radio, made possible by contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The series producer is A.T. Shire, executive producer Sean Birch. Our fact checker is Keelan Bailey. I want to thank all our guests who appeared in this episode, Bailey Parker, Jin Hee Kim, Sue Berkowitz, Lee Gardner, and Sally Engels. And you can find this episode of Indebted at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org slash Indebted, where you can listen and learn and share as many times as you like. You'll also find additional stories and information there, or you can subscribe to Indebted wherever you get your podcast. Thank you, of course, for listening. I'm Scott Morgan. I'll see you in the next episode. In the meantime, have a wonderful day and be good to the world. <laughs>